Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zanki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado. Zanki Roshi's teaching is made possible through the Boulder Zen Center's membership program. If you're benefiting from these talks and would like to continue hearing them here on the podcast, I hope you'll consider becoming a member. You can do so on our website at boulderzen.org, and you can find a link in the episode notes. Today's talk was recorded as a part of the course Wisdom Mind. It is the third course in Zenki's Foundational Zen Teaching Series. The first two courses of the series are available in a recorded, self-paced format on our website. If you are interested in those courses, I will put a link in the episode notes. Now here's Zenki Roshi. Good morning. So we're talking about wisdom. And sometimes you can approach something um, through what it's not. But we can try. Um, In Buddhism, you could say the opposite of wisdom is delusion. Dogen says something in the Genjo Koan, he says something extraordinary, I think extraordinary. He says, um, those who are uh, greatly deluded about enlightenment are called sentient beings. Those who are greatly enlightened enlightened about delusion are called Buddhas. <clears throat> How do you uh, become a Buddha? You become a Buddha by uh, waking up to your delusion. By mm, deeply understanding what delusion is and seeing through it. You know, we often, uh, when you um, look at an opposition like wisdom and delusion, you think wisdom is the absence of delusion. Dugan says another phrase that I really um, cherish a lot. It's just like it's a question, but it really is a statement. What is it like when a greatly enlightened person is nevertheless deluded? What what happens to your delusion when you've fully seen through it? Does it go away, or does it? Ch- does it just change the way you um, relate to it? Anyway, those are some questions we can see. There's a teaching called the Five Dharmas, um, which you can find in the Lankavatara Sutra uh, that I want to present today. And I 
I personally, uh, you know, I could say like it a lot. I've benefited from it a lot because it creates um, a certain kind of clarity. And so I want to present it again. I've done this before. And the Lankavatara Sutra, you can look it up, is um, is a Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhist text. And supposedly Bodhidharma, the, the legendary founder of the Zen school in China, said to his disciple and successor, Weike, he said, uh, everything you need to know is in this book. So the Lankavatara Sutra, among many other things, presents the teaching of the five dharmas. You know what, let me not define what dharma means here, but we, we can, uh, you know, we can hold that question. So it's a list, like so many Buddhist teachings and the five dharmas. Uh, our list, and the list is appearance, name, discrimination, right knowledge, and suchness. Again, appearance, name, discrimination, right knowledge, and suchness. Okay. There's a certain dynamic in this list which I want to unfold now. So the first uh, item is appearance. And appearance points us to the fact that how, how we know the world initially is through uh, the, in Buddhism, the six senses, the five physical senses and mind. The world appears to us, things appear to us through the senses. I said in the first talk, I said, um, the guiding question for wisdom is how do things actually exist? And um, one thing we need to ask ourselves is, can we actually know how things, can we know how things actually exist? Can we actually know that? And my initial answer would be, no, we can't. How things actually exist is withdrawn from us fundamentally. Things um, exist as a mystery. And the first way you can clarify that is through appearance. So the world uh, or things, just work with this very imprecise term, but... Um, Things appear to us through the five physical senses. So we see color and form, and we hear sound, and we smell, smell, smells, and taste, tastes, and we um, have tactile impressions 
So if you um, take the example, you know, in philosophy, most examples are constructed with apples and tables. I don't know why, you know. Mm -hmm. Tables probably because philosophers sit at desks and they, you know, take what is immediately available to them. Apples, I don't know. The apple is a, has a rich history of, you know, it's how paradise got lost. And, you know, I don't know, in Europe there's Wilhelm Tell and he's shooting the apple off. Of it. It's a story of freedom and oppression. Um, so, you know, just like the apple has a rich history. So let me use the apple. When you um, see an apple, you see color and form. It's red, yellow, or greenish. And when you bite into it, it makes a sound. And um, we have this kind of... You can have this imagination now of these sensory impressions in the absence of the apple. Um, Apple has a certain kind of smell. It has a sour, acidic, sweet taste. And it feels a certain way when you have it in your hand, the skin of the apple, more or less waxy. Then you put it to your lips and then you can feel it on your lips. And when you eat it, you know, you have a feeling of the flesh on the tongue. So these are the the apple appears within the five senses and it's mysterious because it doesn't appear as a unified object. You can see that? It actually appears split up into these five sense channels. You can move attention to how the apple looks, how the apple uh, sounds, how the apple smells. And you can, you can let attention get absorbed in each of these sense channels. But then, um, our mind binds together these... Um, these five separate sense impressions with a concept, apple, and gives it a name, which is the second um, item on the list. Appearance and then name. This is quite fascinating to me right now because I live with a toddler and uh, from very early age on, we uh, start reading books to him, you know, and children's books, I mean, they operate with images and then some text. In the beginning, I I had the I, I had the sense that this baby boy wasn't even you know he was actually turning pages but it, my sense was he wasn't mm, distinguishing things so clearly as uh, objects and I was reading um, 
the stories and just to make the sound of the language, to expose him to the language with sound. But now that he's one and a half years old, he is actually less interested in the in the stories or in the sound of my reading. He's very interested in the uh, individual objects and he has very favorite objects, you know, especially trucks. <laughs> <laughs> Everything with wheels. <laughs> So he picks out visual objects from the page and points his finger at it and then, you know, I have to say the name. <clears throat> so it's very interesting to me um, that he learns the world not actually through appearance of real objects so much as through the picture books that give the abstracted image of something that receives a name. And then later when he goes out into the real world and sees a truck, he will recognize the shape of the truck based on the picture that he saw in the book, not the other way around. So the name, and this is important to observe here, the name can replace the can replace the appearance. Also, what's relevant in the story is it's mostly pictures. Uh, we all have heard, you know, that the visual sense in human beings is so dominant. Okay, so what does dominant mean? I think dominant means that it absorbs a lot of attention. Because our visual uh, relationship to the world absorbs so much attention, we can start to like not really pay attention to smells much. Smells don't contribute as much to our sense of objectness as the visual color and form does. It's, I think it's just the case. <clears throat> this isn't always true, but mostly you can kind of ignore uh, how things smell, you know, unless it's awful, then you have to kind of pay attention to it because either you are appalled or it indicates that it's food you shouldn't eat and so forth. But from a sense of utility of orienting yourself in the world, sense uh, smell isn't so important to us. As we all know, it's really important to dogs or bears or, or deer. So we think the world appears through the senses the way it is, like things appear through the, through the senses as they are. But we, we have to be clear about the fact that um, there are colors we don't see. Like we know that. We know that there is a color spectrum and the human eye only sees a portion of it. We don't see infrared. We don't see ultraviolet. Now, I just mentioned uh, animals, dogs, bears, and so forth. These animals smell things we don't smell. They also hear things we don't hear. So clearly, even our sensorial 
relationship to the world isn't such that we see things as they actually are. At least we must say a lot of how things actually are is left out from how things appear to us. So I like to say um, things are always more than how they appear or more than what we can know about them. When we assign a name, then our mind, I think, starts to have a sense of knowing. Like, I know what an apple is. It's because it's a form of grasping. So, you could say this level of what the five dharma calls appearance is already removing us one degree from how things actually exist. Because we don't see certain colors and we don't see we don't hear certain sounds and we don't smell certain smells etc etc not only are we not paying attention to our sensorial apparatus just isn't capable of picking it up how things are actually in their full complexity but then once you have a name and an underlying concept of what an apple is you know, you could stop paying attention to how it, how it looks and how it sounds and how it smells because you already know it, which happens all the time. Once you know something, you can. This is a kind of economy in the in the brain. I, I assume you know you can stop paying attention to to how it actually appears. The name replaces the appearance. I think there's, when Newton developed his physics, I think, and it's the basis for, you know, building the steam engine, which revolutionized the world. It's, um, it must be a, must have been a great excitement, I um, assume. I didn't live in that time, but I assume it was a great excitement about how we now have the capability of grasping the world through these mathematical concepts that Newton put forth in such a brilliant way. And indeed, you know, it, it allowed humans to take hold of the world by, you know, building these machines, and they work. This is the phenomenal thing that these machines work. I mean, if you build a machine and it doesn't work, it's like, okay. <laughs> but they work predictably well. Like I often say, you know, it's like the fact that we step into airplanes and trust that they will fly is just amazing. So there is knowledge about the world because we can use it to build something that actually works. But if you take this idea so far as to say, you know, Newton described the world in its entirety mathematically, we already know that the history of physics has proven this wrong because then Einstein comes along and says, you know, 
actually, you know, we need to think about time and space differently. And his uh, equations are more powerful. They explain more about the world than Newton's equations do. And then there are quantum quantum physicists who say, you know, no, but you know, this doesn't explain how the world functions in the micro uh, realm. And so now you have another theory that is seemingly true, but you know, to this day, Einsteinian physics and quantum physics cannot be reconciled. So the world recedes from our conceptual grasp, even if it's as rigorous as physics. I personally doubt that we can ever come up with some super theory that just grasps the world completely. It's like there will always be a mystery of things that uh, just don't appear to us. Now, whether this is true or not, I don't know. But it's an attitude. This attitude, I think, is important to um, whether you believe there is a mystery or whether you think that there is that the world is fully explainable. I think until the scientific revolution, um, humans always lived with the mystery. And they made up concepts for it, you know, spirits and ghosts and gods and made up concepts. I, I don't think these people thought they were made up they found names for the way life came to them that needed to be acknowledged. This is like giving name names to the mystery. So in our scientifically oriented world, in our secular world, these things now are kind of like hocus pocus, you know, because they're not scientific. So we don't really have an active relationship to the mystery. Because we are have eliminated those names, those concepts, which also has a lot of advantages, you know. We don't have we don't believe in weird stuff. But as has been said many times. Now the world is disenchanted. Now we don't have, like I said, an active relationship to the mystery. Okay, so we have, this just an aside, I distinguish between name and concept. The Lankavatara Sutra in translation says name. But it's very clear that there's a difference between a concept and a name. You know, Matthias, my toddler son, uh, grow, is growing up bilingually, and so he can have the same concept for apple in two different names, in two different languages. <clears throat> it's just an aside. What binds appearance together is a concept, and then we give that concept a name. If you don't speak multiple languages, you think, hmm, you know, the concept and the name is the same. Because they coincide all the time. We handle concepts through their names.
Okay, and then um, the third item, third tier, is discrimination. Discrimination means distinction, really. It means to see something, to define something through what it is not. Like I said in the beginning, you can look at wisdom through what it is not, delusion. Now, the way we handle concepts is uh, the mind handles concepts in opposite. Good, bad, woman, man, heaven and earth, America and Russia. Sometimes we make opposites where it's like, where's the opposite? Well, it gets read into stuff like with America and Russia. Now, capitalism and communism are opposites. <clears throat> Friend and enemy. Yeah, endless. Pairs of opposites, conceptual opposites. This is discrimination. Now, the way the word is used in our culture now is discrimination means to make such a distinction and then put someone at a, dis at a disadvantage because of it. To elevate one side of the distinction and to put down the other. But the way I read it here in this list of the five dharmas, it's primarily the, our noticing that Concepts come in opposites. But it's true that the actions that we um, engage in based on these opposites, based on these distinctions, lead to um, preferences. No, and people ask me, you know, when they hear my accent and they say, Where are you from? And I say, Okay, I'm. I have to reveal it, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm German, okay. So you just see in this phrase here, it's like there is um, a distinction being made between nationalities. And then if I say I am German, I turn it into an identity. Well, I've lived almost as long in the U.S. now as I've lived in Germany, and I have an American passport now, so maybe I should stop saying I'm German. I don't know. Why am I saying it? Well, because people dis detect some difference in how I speak. <clears throat> when I first came to America, I came through an exchange program with a university exchange program, so I landed in San Francisco, and I went to school there, and I took a class I was involved with you know communication and you know so it was a communications class and we were talking in the class about prejudice and um, there was a woman in the class and she said um, I don't really have any prejudice uh, against people um, except Against the Germans. <laughs> well, it turned out she was Jewish. And um, so it's understandable. 
but it stings, yeah. You know, you know that from your um, own experience in various ways. It stings. Um, this is the problem that we're dealing with right now in our multicultural American society. Um, when you group someone with other people, this is this is what happens. You do, you you lose sight of their particularity. Let me say, don't want to say individuality. Well, we could say individuality, but that carries something already. You lose sight of their particularity, and I want to even say you lose sight of their mystery. To see somebody as a as part of a group is to put someone into a category that exists in counter-distinction to something else. So they belong here and not there. I want to say something about story um, soon. But when people try to free themselves from uh, these kinds of imprisonments into categories, often they resort to uh, telling their individual story. And um, one reason that works, I think, is because story, in contrast to um, discriminatory categories, categories that make distinctions and then also create inequality. Um, story has the power to uh, reveal more connection. It's not so black and white, you know. So, for example, if I delve into my own personal story, it's like <laughs> my Germanness. Geez, you know. As far as I know, my ancestors were mostly French and Austrian because they were discriminated against in Catholic, French, and Austria, and the Prussian king invited these um, Protestants from these Catholic neighboring countries into Prussia to uh, cultivate a, an uncultivated area. So these Protestants found a new home in Germany, you know, but my name and is, uh, is French in origin, and, you know, my ancestors are mostly French and Austrian, so, like, there goes your Germanness. It's, like, dissolves into, like, complexity. <clears throat> That's just one, it's just one aspect, right? So everyone could tell this kind of story. And yes, you know, somewhere... Um, there were Nazis in my uh, family. But, you know, does that make me a Nazi? Anyway, I had to deal with this psychologically uh, through my young adulthood. Um, and then all of this gets picked up when somebody makes one comment. On the, on the one hand, I think it's, um, it's unavoidable because the mind works in these categories. And on the other hand, we can see in ourselves how 
uh, sensitive we are to being categorized in this way. Now, we sometimes categorize ourselves that way voluntarily, identify with some group, which could be advantageous for a while until it's not. <laughs> As long as that group is strong and has power, it may feel right um, for us, functional, uh, unless it's, and then it's not anymore, and then it becomes different. Then we want to disidentify. So much of what we can consider our identity, I think, has to do with how we ourselves group ourselves, put ourselves into categories, and also how others are putting us into categories. Sometimes we want to resist that and say, don't put me in that category. I don't belong there. <clears throat> the point here is, and fleshing out something is like you have appearance, you have name, and then you have discrimination, which I'm um, interpreting right now as... Um, opposing conceptual categories and that removes you another degree from how things actually exist. If you perceive the world through this um, categorization, you know, you're not really in touch with how things actually exist. Or at least we can explore it that way, for this is the teaching. It, the teaching doesn't tell us how what it what's going on. It gives us entry points into investigating it. Then the next item is right knowledge. But let me put in another thing here, which I think is missing, like the Lankavatara Sutra didn't... It missed something, <laughs> which is, um, so Bodhidharma maybe wasn't right. It's, it's not all you need. Um, <laughs> doesn't tell you everything. No, I think um, it's important to, to add story here. Now, story, con in my view, story connects concepts through in space and time. So... I can talk about my Germanness in space and time, meaning like, you know, you just heard me, you know, my ancestors that were in different spaces, named differently, migrated, and then there is a process that is time that um, created something new. So the story really puts these categories into perspective uh, in the context of space and time. And that's why there's way more complexity than just thinking systematically through, through categories. So story allows for more complexity, but story also then creates the world in certain ways. And... Um, socially construct the world in certain ways. It's just amazing to me, like, if you um, look at these, like, opposing political stories that are floating through our social space. Let's just take one, you know. Um, immigration to the United States is a threat. You know? That's the basic story of the right. It's a threat. It's a danger. 
we have to uh, put a wall up to avoid it or to to stop it or to um, limit it at least. I'm an immigrant too, right? But it's like funny when you have the category immigrant, like immediately people have, you know, certain images of skin color and and, and, and country of origin. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that's just an aside. So immigration is a threat. On the left, it's like it's the opposite. Oh, immigration is great. Immigration is what we need. You know, without immigration, the country can't survive. So let's be open to immigration and welcome it. Well, neither of these stories, obviously, uh, capture the complexity of immigration into the United States at all. It's not, it's not just a threat, and it's also not just great. It creates all kinds of problems. So part of this investigation that we uh, that we can do through the five dharmas is to realize that um, to simplify the complexity of how things actually exist through appearance, name, um, discrimination, and story is uh, we're missing something. You can take. This is an exercise. You could take all of the major political fault lines and look at them as opposing stories and realize that neither of the stories on the left or the right are complete in any, sen in any sense. <clears throat> Abortion is murder and needs to be banned. Abortion is okay and is an expression of freedom. The actual experience and dealing with abortion is not captured by these kinds of stories. They're so simplifying. <clears throat> abortion is killing, right? How we... Judge that killing is another matter, but to say, uh, oh, we're going to just not see that it's killing, or we're going to emphasize that it's murder and we need to put people in prison. This is, um, this is missing something. This is important to realize when you investigate the mind, that the mind is doing that. And what is the mind doing when we go through this progression of appearance, name, conceptualization, discrimination and storytelling, we, as Buddhism says, we attach to that. We believe in it as reality. We believe in these steps as reality. This is the problem. <clears throat> And this is where the next item comes in. The next item is right knowledge. 
And right knowledge would be to know that th this progression is a process of social construction <clears throat> and that it always misses how things actually exist. How things actually exist, <clears throat> excuse me, is withdrawn from our grasp. <clears throat> you could say that's right knowledge. That's wisdom. Then the, the next item is called suchness. So the application of right knowledge, which cuts through these social constructions as, you know, points of um, that we attach our belief to, can enter us into suchness. Suchness, you could say, is um, an, a pointer to relate to things in their withdrawnness. To relate to things in their uh, in their mysteriousness. So if you use if you if you use the five dharma if you use the five dharmas the beginning of the list name uh, appearance name discrimination and I added story and you see that this is delusion. Yeah, this social construction is delusion. You realize that the wisdom of suchness needs to be non-narrative, non-discriminatory, non-conceptual, and even non-sensorial. <clears throat> How is that even possible? I mean, that's just, I mean, that's all we have. All you have is the senses and the mind conceptualizing and the narrative mind telling stories. That's what it is to be a human being. How can you have such, how can you relate to the withdrawnness of the world? It's kind of impossible. But it's like, it points to how we have to really get out of our heads And even out of our attachment, I would say, not out of our senses, but out of our attachment to our senses. So it's like we function. We function with the world. We function with this mystery. 
Even though we don't understand everything about the world, and we can't grasp it fully, we are functioning in it. <clears throat> you know, it's possible to grow food and eat and, and live and survive. You don't have to understand fully the genetics and biology of apples to to grow apples and to even refine apples. There's a kind of like, <laughs> there's a way to relate to um, the appearance of apples in a way that you allow it to nourish you. Yes, our ability to um, enhance uh, the development of apples agriculturally, I mean now, is aided through our knowledge. And what I'm discussing right now is not to to say that all this knowledge is false, you know, it's only delusional. What's delusional is to believe that this kind of knowledge, this socially constructed knowledge, is mm, conclusively true. You see? So, suchness is kind of like maintaining an openness to the unknown, maintaining an openness to the mystery of the world, and allowing yourself to function through this complexity, also in ways that you don't understand. And maybe will never understand. This isn't just, you know, Buddhist, but Buddhism is uh, contributes greatly to this kind of attitude. There's a um, German-French theologian, Albert Schweitzer, who is, um, you know, often widely quoted in Germany. But he, he says, um, to know life is to realize its mystery. It's one of his famous quotes. He's he's an example of this, you know. He uh, was born in Alsace, which is this contended piece of land between Germany and France. And he was born into Alsace when it was German, and he he died when it was French. <laughs> <laughs> he had to shift categories. When you look him up on Wikipedia, it says German-French Alsatian, you know, philosopher Albert Schweitzer. Can't pin him down, the mystery. <clears throat> now, one last wrinkle here. It's like... We are humans, and we do function, as I'm saying, function with the mystery, through the mystery. You function through your senses, and you function through your conceptual mind, and you function through your discriminatory mind, and you function through your narrative mind. So to express our humanness will actually produce all this stuff. We will see and hear and smell, and we will identify that thing as an apple and we discriminate it against pears and we tell a story of how I'm an apple person not a pear or peach person 
these crazy people. <laughs> I always like this about American English, you know, I'm a salad person. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a potato person. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. <laughs> but I am German, so I am a potato person. <laughs> um, so how our preferential stories lead to identity. This is what I'm saying right now. So that we can even say that. Some, I'm a cat person, I'm a dog person, I'm a salad person. You turn it into identity, see? So that will happen. And so wisdom, as far as I understand it, Buddhist wisdom is how much do you believe in it? This is a function of attachment, but uh, let me use the word believe. How much do you believe this stuff that your mind is constructing? And it's not just an individual construction, it's a cultural construction. These constructions are extremely powerful. Um, it's like through the storytelling is how we cooperate, through shared belief. So it's actually very difficult to abandon this kind of belief. You know, in this war that's happening in uh, Ukraine right now, Russia, Putin is, as the leader of Russia, is telling this story about Russia and what it is for him. And he wants to convince the nation that this is the true story of Russia. And he's trying to get people to die for this story of Russia. He is getting people to die for it. <clears throat> and uh, in these recent historic events, you know, we can see that... Um, by trying to conscribe more soldiers into the story of Russia, some people are saying, no, I don't want to die for this story. I, I just, I'd rather go to Georgia or I'd flee to Finland because it's, um, it's not worth to die for that story of Russia. But if we're smug and we're saying, oh, Putin is telling a wrong story about Russia, we are all te also telling a wrong story, a wrong story about Russia. We're telling a story about Russia. We can say that much. And it, from, from the point of view of suchness, it's always wrong. It's always diluted because it does not capture the complexity of what it is. We're, we're look, trying to look at. How can you look at Russia? You know, a landmass spanning, spanning 11 time zones. There's no homogeneity there. <clears throat> but a story homogenizes it. A story will bind something together and put people into a shared cultural space. And of course, there will always be disagreement about what cultural space we really want to construct and what, how we want to live in it and so forth. This is, this is the predicament of human life. 
we here in our practice are talking about how can you how can you uh, practice in the direction of freedom and wisdom, meaning how much belief uh, we each investing into certain stories and how open-minded can we remain about letting, you know, the way the world comes forward re-inform us about things. Let suchness function. Apply right knowledge so that suchness can function. Then, yes, you have to Enter because you are a human mind. Enter into appearance and name, and just. But hopefully, it can now be in a um, in the context of mystery or in the context of freedom. In this process, we can find out maybe that certain stories do function better than others. I believe that certain stories are less oppressive or less deluded than others. But no story doesn't have a delusive component to it. Just because it's complexity reduction. It's it's this complicated. It's this this is where this question where an answer to this question lies, and let's not try to uh, answer it in a conceptual way when Dogen asks, what is it like when, uh, um, when an enlightened person, a person who has realizing freedom through non-attachment to these social constructions, when an enlightened person is nevertheless deluded, when such a person needs to re-enter into you know, conceptualization and storytelling? What is it like to do that with a mind that is more open? Thank you very much. <laughs>